0: Once again, dear listeners, and thank you for joining us here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Datum Line. Today's date, June 30, 2013, the year of our Lord. In our last Datum Line broadcast entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit Part 13, we opened with a further discussion of a myth that captured the imagination of Bill Still, whose book, No More National Debt, published in 2011, asserts that the constitutional intent of our forefathers was to coin paper into money. Such nonsense is used to defend a modern but meaningless economics vocabulary, which is why opposing factions of economic reform cannot resolve their differences. The 19th century protocols speak of the confusion sown by media and academia, that would render essential communication meaningless among targeted populations. Consider this as a prophecy fulfilled, and in no subject is it more evident than in economics, to the extent that those who are zealous to teach others are blind to the absurdities they teach. As pointed out in our last broadcast, Bill Still was puzzled by the fact that the Coinage Act of 1792, said absolutely nothing about paper money or bills of credit. This was revealed on page 101, immediately after divulging its official title to his readers, quote, an act establishing a mint and regulating the coins of the United States, end quote. Did you hear the words paper money or bills of credit? No, because the words mint, coins, and coinage were and still are, limited to bullion, which was and still is gold and silver set aside for the purpose of fashioning those metals into money. The Coinage Act had absolutely nothing to do with bills of credit or so-called paper money. Our last message ended by inching us toward the legal tender debates of 1862 and the resulting acts of Congress, that would pave the way for today's socialist, centrally planned, centrally regulated system of 100% credit. Our Federal Reserve System is still a work in progress, and it's folks like Bill Still who urge your support for the next phase in its evolutionary development, nationalization, in strict compliance with the fifth plank of the Communist Manifesto. As with our previous Datum Line broadcasts, We'll try to reinforce what was introduced in our last message while moving forward into those legal tender debates of the Lincoln administration, which resurrected a fascination for credit. This would finally alter America's perception of right and wrong while replacing our Christian free enterprise system, so soon weakened by state-chartered banks, with a monopoly of federal credit regulated by the godmen in Washington and at their global headquarters in Brussels or wherever. Credit is the modern lifeblood of government tyranny and is what feeds our instant gratification, throwaway lifestyle, in disregard of the Tenth Commandment which says in part, Thou shalt not covet. The latest wave of advocates for central bank credit to feed our individual and collective greed are fixated on a socialist utopian dream of never-ending prosperity that can only be achieved by violating every economic commandment of Scripture. This does not sound like a surefire recipe for long-term success. Today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 14. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and you are listening to Data Mine. Greetings once again, and welcome back to this segment of Datum Line. Our message today entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 14. For the benefit of new listeners, and because I disagree with the advocates of another credit system to replace the one we already have in the Federal Reserve, it might be assumed that I'm a champion of the gold standard, or perhaps state-chartered banks, That assumption would be incorrect, however, since both of these violate the spirit of our nation's constitution and the commandments of God as set forth in Scripture. The fact that Federal Reserve critics are mired in a debate between paper money and the gold standard is another example of a predetermined menu from which we're supposed to choose. We see this more clearly at election time, don't we? If you're not for Obama, it's presumed you're a neoconservative Republican. Virtually no one can tell you what all of these political labels mean today or how they differ from what they meant yesterday. But defining our terms is how we hope to understand a subject, which is why there is so little comprehension among economic reformers on all sides of the debate.
1: I'm reminded
0: of a public forum where several of us were asked to deliver a brief outline of America's economic situation, after which we would field questions from the audience. One of the other speakers, a theologian, admitted that she knew nothing about economics, but that didn't prevent her from taking twice the time allotted to each of us. No wonder the average American has very little patience for politics or economics. They don't make any more sense than modern religion. And when asked to define their terms, our nation's religious, political, and economic leadership follow the guiding principle of America's legal profession, admit nothing, and deny everything. As in previous broadcasts, I've tried to correlate events from the past with present-day occurrences, providing a thread of continuity in an effort to show cause-and-effect relationships that will improve our understanding as to why and how our modern world came to be. Regular listeners have probably figured out, if they didn't know it already, that the European monarchies and our constitutional system of limited government here in America were replaced by a tyrannical hydra of central banking. There is no greater power on earth than that of credit created out of absolutely nothing and given legal tender sanction by government. This is the power to steal the people's wealth legally, a crime that Bill Still and so many others ignore. If you disagree, however, please set me straight so I can join your fight for truth, justice, and the American way. Since man-made civil law is imperfect, because man's understanding of the world and human nature is imperfect, there is a continual revising of statutes and regulations to correct its defects and to positively solidify the banking cartel's position on the throne of global governance. Thus, as a work in progress, this system of legal plunder has not fully evolved. Many who claim to oppose the Federal Reserve in its present form, however, urge your support for its next level of development, as I mentioned before, that is, nationalization. If you recognize the false paradigm of Hegelian dialectics as practiced between Republicans and Democrats, then you should be able to see the same pattern of dialectics in the debate for economic reform. Gold bugs, for example, as Bill Still and Ellen Brown like to call them, push for the so-called gold standard which is not a synonym for gold and silver coinage, as mandated by the Constitution. Nor would it ever pass biblical muster. Greenbackers, as they're evidently called, also defy the Constitution and Scripture by advocating centrally planned and issued bank credit, in strict compliance with the fifth plank of the Communist Manifesto.
1: Are those the only two choices?
0: Asked a hen when confronted by an either-or situation in the cartoon Chicken Run? No, they aren't the only two choices, but those are the only two choices we're given to assure our vote for an officially approved outcome. Federal Reserve critics, all of whom are trying to awaken their lost Democrat and Republican neighbors, have been cunningly drawn into this web of deceit. The only wisdom that will overcome the clever ploy of Satan and his children, is the wisdom of God. But the social engineers of populism are not ready to go down that road just yet. They, and they alone, are the saviors of mankind, not the principles of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But am I being presumptuous? Well, let's turn to Bill Still's book, No More National Debt, at page 17, where he says, quote, Our entire global economic system is at a tipping point, and nothing, nothing, the second one is underlined, can rescue, save, can rescue it short of the basic reforms presented in this book, end quote. Well, I would agree our entire global economic system is at a tipping point, but I don't agree that nothing, nothing can rescue or save it short of the basic reform principles presented in his book. I do, however, admire his confidence. And a man certainly has to have enough confidence in what he's presenting as a teacher and spokesman for economic reform before he can reach out to others. But this is a man who, along with other teachers, could not define the word dollar in the year 2011, and whose solution to our monetary woes is to use absolutely nothing as money. Am I making this up? Well, let's take an excerpt from the forward to his book, No More National Debt, written two years ago in 2011, the forward being written by Frank Maggio, who says, quote, despite the evidence, underlined, very few people or organizations have valid solutions, underlined, period. Now, I would agree with Mr. Maggio emphatically, that there are very few people or organizations who have valid solutions. I'm not even sure that I do. He goes on, although many are sincere, they would have us believe that governments can't be trusted. I'm going to stop right there at the comma. Dear listeners, can you trust your government? This is the government that brought you the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, to preserve our freedom. Okay? Can't even discern who it was that did 9-11. Anyway, he says that there are people who believe that we can't trust government. Well, I'm one of those. And that money must be tied to a commodity such as gold or silver. Hmm. Bill Stills' goal, says Mr. Maggio, is to use evidence drawn from money systems throughout history. That history, by the way, doesn't include the Bible. To establish two simple guidelines for truly sound money. I'm going to stop there with three dots of ellipses. First... We the people, through a democratically elected, honest, Republican government, now he doesn't mean the Republican Party, he means Republican in the small r sense, should control the issuance, quantity, and quality of our money, end quote. Well, if Frank Maggio and Bill Still would simply read the Coinage Act of 1792, they will discover how we the people, as the source of original issue, were supposed to, were able to bring gold and silver bullion to the mint for coining, and that the mint was charged with regulating the quantity expressed in both troy and decimal weight. Troy was expressed in grains or ounces. Decimal weight was expressed in dollars and cents. And that they were to regulate the quality, that being the purity or the fineness, which is expressed in percentage or in decimal. This of the money that was produced from those precious metals. Instead, Frank and Bill argue for a central bank monopoly where Congress will steal our goods and services using dollars of no money, where they, Congress, can decide how much credit will be invented to be used by whom, for what purpose, and at what cost. I fail to see how we the people can occupy both sides of these bilateral operations at the same time. Second, he says, quote, this money must not, those words must not are all capital, this money must not be based on or bonded by any commodity, since commodity bondage ultimately subjects a sovereign nation to the whims of those who create, control, corner, or counterfeit that commodity, be it silver gold, oil, wheat, silicon chips, or cow chips. Hmm. End quote. As a college dropout, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm unaware of any historical evidence that proves anyone ever figured out how to create silver, gold, oil, wheat, silicon chips, or cow chips out of absolutely nothing. Nor am I aware of any legal action that ever charged anyone with counterfeiting oil, wheat, or cow chips. Counterfeiting gold or silver coins usually entailed the passing of debased coins containing less gold or silver than their lawful counterpart. If populists will take a minute to read the Coinage Act at Section 19, they'll see that the penalty for government officials debasing our coins was Death. The culprits who debased our coins 100%, however, and got away with it, were the lawyers in Congress who supplied the legal means for seizing our gold in 1934, our silver between 1963 and 68, and replaced our lawful money with intangible credit. Gee, there's our music. Here's our next break. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and you are listening to the Bottom Line. Segment of Datum Line. Our message today is entitled "Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit." This is part 14. On the front side of this last break, I was uh, taking a look at the forward uh, in Bill Still's book, uh, "No More National Debt," published in 2011. This forward, written by Frank Maggio, uh, who uh, was arguing. Uh, against the use of gold and silver as money, for example, because uh, such uh, metals being used as money would allow others to create it, uh, which, which is impossible. No one has figured out how to create any tangible out of nothing. But he also went on to say that they would be allowed to control or corner the market on those. Well, that is true. There are people who have done that. And how did they corner the market? Well, they cornered and controlled the market with credit, which is the use of absolutely nothing as money. Credit comes from the Latin word, credere, your means, which you understand, which means uh, to believe. Uh, that's the kind of a system that Frank Maggio and Bill still believe we ought to have, is the kind of a system that allowed those people to corner and control commodities like gold, silver, and even your labor. Okay? You also point out that they're able to counterfeit those things. Well, that's true. Uh, But there was a penalty for counterfeiting, particularly uh, when it came to the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792, at Section 19, which prescribed a penalty for government officials engaged in debasing our coins, and that penalty was death. Yet it was the public officials, the lawyers in Congress, who supplied the legal framework, for seizing our gold in 1934, our silver between 1963 and 68, on behalf of the Federal Reserve System, and replaced our lawful money with intangible credit. Nevertheless, Frank, Bill, and their fellow travelers at American Free Press, American Monetary Institute, the pilgrims of St. Michael ad nauseum, state emphatically that what Congress and the Federal Reserve System left us with which is absolutely nothing, is what we must be using or must use to save us from the economic extinction caused by Congress and the Federal Reserve. Am I missing something? Well, continuing with Frank Maggio's forward to Bill Still's book, he goes on to say, quote, Bill's trumpet call is clear. Well, I'll tell you what, it's about the most confusing uh, nonsense, but nevertheless, he says it's clear. He says, sound money must be controlled by and backed by we the people. How do people back, back uh, money? Uh, money doesn't have to be backed by anything. It's promises to pay money that has to be backed by the money. Okay? He goes on to say that it should be spent, capital letters, spent into existence, and not lent, capital letters, into existence. Well, that's a point well taken. So would Frank and Bill. Be equally enthusiastic about letting me spend checks and notes into circulation, checks and notes that are written against absolutely nothing. If not, ask them to tell you why. Then ask them to define the word debt. Now, these folks ignore definitions, so you're going to need to be persistent in order to get a definition and make sure it's an accurate definition because they don't like accurate definitions either. Ask them if a check or a note is a debt instrument and don't let them off the hook. Then ask for their legal theory as to how we, the people, delegated to Congress a power to steal legally and why we're supposed to trust them with such an unlawful power. It's one thing to learn about certain aspects of bank fraud. After all, most of us. Uh, have not discovered this on our own. But to advocate a replacement system of fraud and theft in violation of every economic commandment and principle of Scripture is not the way to peace and prosperity. And to show listeners that I don't indulge in petty favoritism, let's go to another book written by another author. This one, The Web of Debt by Ellen Brown, published in 2007 updated in 2008, and this with regards to Lincoln greenbacks, which is the subject of today's message. She says, quote, they, she means United States notes, they were basically just receipts acknowledging work done or goods delivered, which could be traded in the community for an equivalent value of goods and services. The greenbacks represented man hours rather than borrowed gold. Wow. The web of debt. Page 95. This has to be one of the most creative definitions for a promissory note I've ever seen, which may explain why her glossary fails to define a note or a dollar, money or debt. I wonder if by claiming equal protection of the law, my receipt for a tractor, riding mower, groceries, hardware items, automobile, house, and so forth, could be leveraged by act of Congress into a means of paying for other stuff so that I could steal the equivalent value of those receipts in goods and services produced by my fellow citizens. Well, let's continue. She says, quote, the Greenback system undergirded Lincoln's program for domestic development. Whoa, just a moment here. (laughs) The Greenbacks undergirded Lincoln's program for domestic development. Civil war is a program of domestic development. Well, here's our music. We're going to come back to this thought on the other side of this break i'm bruce g mccarthy and this is Datamon.
2: you're listening to the republic broadcasting network because you can handle the truth
0: Today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 14. On the front side of this last break, we were looking at Ellen Brown's book, The Web of Debt. Ellen Brown's an attorney, by the way. Uh, The Web of Debt, uh, and I had gotten up to page 87, where she had said that the, uh, the greenback system, legal tender notes, undergirded Lincoln's program of domestic development. Uh, did you know that civil war was a program of domestic development? Uh, I guess it is, uh, if you really kind of expand your definition of the word. After all, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman's march to the sea uh, wreaked havoc in the South, utter destruction. They burned just about everything in sight, I guess. And I suppose you could call that a form of urban renewal. You destroy everything, and then you rebuild it. So that could be called a program of domestic development. Uh, That's a stretch in my book, however. And the reason she says that this was a program of domestic development, these Lincoln greenbacks, was because it provided a much-needed national paper money supply. After Jackson, I'm quoting her now, after Jackson had closed the central bank, the only paper money in circulation were the bank notes issued privately by individual state banks. I'm going to stop right there. Paper money, first off, is a non sequitur. A paper has never been used as money. It's too heavy to be used as money. But she says that the paper money were banknotes. A banknote, for those who still don't know the definition of a note, is a promise to pay money. Now, there's more to it than that, but a note cannot be money because it's a promise to pay it. She goes on, and she says, and they were basically just, she likes those two words in juxtaposition, basically just private promises to pay later in hard currency, brackets, gold, or silver, end quote. So banknotes were just, yeah, they just basically just promises to pay later in gold or silver. Yeah, those are insignificant, you see. The greenbacks, she says, on the other hand, were... She italicizes that for emphasis. The greenbacks, on the other hand, were currency; they were legal tender in themselves, money that did not have to be repaid later, but was as good as gold in trade. End quote. Ellen Brown, The Web of Debt, page eighty-seven. Can you believe that a promissory note is something that doesn't have to be repaid later? Well, let's look at this. The second word in the phrase legal tender is the word tender, which means an offer of money. An offer of money is not money. An offer to pay gold is not gold. Furthermore, greenbacks in their various forms, they existed as demand notes, legal tender notes, interest-bearing notes, and compound interest-bearing notes, all of those carried a promise to pay later on their face. A promise, a tender or an offer, to pay money is not the money it promises to pay later. After the war ended, the Resumption Act of 1875 directed the Treasury to pay down those notes through redemption in gold and silver coin. See, and that coin had begun to refill the vaults after the war ended. Why was it that the Resumption Act directed the Treasury to pay those notes down through redemption? Because those greenbacks were notes. Notes are IOUs, not money. The pronouncements of Ellen Brown and other populace notwithstanding. They were notes of a sort, which they also said on their face. Would to God that our economic saviors would read what's in front of them and with an understanding as to what the words mean, which they read and write. But she's an attorney and the author of 11 books. I'm an average sort of guy whose comprehension requires a helping hand that only clear and correct definitions can't provide. Now, Let's return to where we left off in our previous Datum Line broadcast, the opening days of the legal tender debates to which Edwin Vieira provided a backdrop in his two-volume set called Pieces of Eight, published in 2002. And you're dealing with about 1,700 pages uh, of those <clears throat> two volumes. <clears throat> anyway, we ended by suggesting that a constitutional alternative was available to Congress if needed other than to increase taxes or to issue legal tender notes, which were in themselves a form of disguised taxation. This alternative, the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States provided by Article I, Section 8, and Paragraph 2 of the Constitution, they later used and used effectively. Our ancestors did not give them the power to borrow credit on the credit of the United States. You'll remember from our last message that it was Bill Still, in his book, No More National Debt, at page 91, who said, <clears throat> with regards to this power to borrow, quote, this question needs to be asked again and again. Why would a sovereign nation borrow when it has the power to create? End quote. So what he's asking is, why would a sovereign nation borrow money when it has the power to create money. That's what he's saying. Since there is a sensible answer to the question, the question should not have to be asked again and again. Congress didn't have the power to create money, which is why we the people gave them the power to borrow money. If you could write checks and issue funny money at no cost to yourself and force everyone else to take it, in this land of the free and home of the brave. What would the money look like that you borrowed? Who would you borrow it from? And why would you be borrowing it? But try to convince these folks that the power to create money out of absolutely nothing doesn't exist as a lawful grant of constitutional authority from we the people. And see how far that gets you. As for the power to borrow... How could this power be exercised in harmony with Scripture? The borrower, after all, is servant to the lender. It says so in Proverbs 22.7. And we're told to owe no man anything. At Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, for example. However, circumstances do occur, perhaps beyond our control, under which a paramount need to borrow money may arise. What then? Can we borrow without violating the will of God? And can we lend money on the same basis? More specifically, may Congress borrow without violating the will of God on behalf of modern-day Israelites? If you'll bear with me, this seems like an appropriate place to make some pertinent observations on this point. First, the Constitution does provide for Congress to borrow money which money conformed somewhat to the law of just weights and measures at Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 13 through 16. It, the Constitution, does not grant the power to borrow intangible credit, which violates that commandment of God. Since a banker's stock in trade is credit, and not tangible gold and silver lawful money, Banks are therefore precluded from making loans of credit to a system of local, state, and federal government that is hemmed in by constitutional mandate to keep all of its accounts current in gold and silver coin, pursuant to Article I, Section 10, Paragraph 1 of the Constitution. Further clarified by the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792, at Section 20, and by the fact that Article 1, Section 8, and Paragraph 5, Congress no longer had or was never to be given the power to emit bills of credit. Those words, and emit bills, were stricken out by a vote of 9 to 2 at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Now, to toy with the idea that government should be able to borrow credit from a bank, is to partake of the slippery slope, or what the Bible speaks of as the leaven of the Pharisees. Second, the source of lawful money is we the people who produced or mined gold and silver as the original issuers. You see, you have the power to do that if you want to. And, secondarily, as the lenders to government of that lawful money. And as the lenders to government we would retain the sovereignty over our public servants, the way it was supposed to be anyway, because our public servants would be the borrowers pursuant to Proverbs 22.7, the borrower being servant to the lender. So the federal government would be the borrower, and the public, lending gold and silver, would be the lender. So our master-servant relationship would remain unchanged, even in the situation of indebtedness. <clears throat> but nothing has yet been said about the subject of interest, which the Bible called usury. <clears throat> and usury is not excessive interest. It is any interest. Okay. Now let's go to the third point. In times of emergency, such as war, a free people can exercise their ultimate economic vote by either lending freely and without interest to a government. That has shown itself willing to protect the life, liberty, and property of its own citizens, or by not lending to an unfaithful servant government. This loan, if made, would be in the spirit of lending to the man who is genuinely poor or needy, pursuant to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, and restated in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. If a war is unjust, however, Free men will not risk their gold and silver in support of outrageous federal conduct. Would you? Why, then, should men risk their lives on the field of battle in such an unjust war? If the enemy is real, as opposed to fabricated, which most of our enemies have been in the last few decades, and threatens our life, liberty, and property, which government is duty-bound to help protect, A man will give of his lawful money, which, not being subject to inflation, will hopefully come back to him in due time without loss of purchasing power. And the only loss that he might suffer is the temporary loss of its use. But this is a small price to pay for liberty, or so it would seem to me. Bankers, on the other hand, would have a man risk his life and limb on land, sea, and in the air to protect an interest-bearing account on loans of absolutely nothing to Uncle Sam, for which the public is made to bear the tax burden through their labor. Fourth point, the fact that our gold and silver coinage was seized in a 50-year-long credit-for-money swap and that no session of Congress has undertaken its recovery from 1965 to present day, which is another 50 years, is sufficient proof in my mind that our public officials are in contempt of the Constitution to which they took an oath before God to protect the life, liberty, and property of us. Yet this is the body of human flesh that Peter Cook, Thorne and Warner, F.W. Mazel, Dr. Charles Norburn, Bill Still, Ellen Brown, Steve Zarlinga, the American Monetary Institute, Mark Anderson and Company at American Free Press, and so many others emphatically proclaim as the saviors of American liberty. We have but one Savior, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should obey Him and repent of our affection for bank credit, which violates every economic commandment of Scripture. But try telling your neighbor to repent of banking and federal handouts to see why America cannot be saved from sin that we continually blame on someone else. The elite are feeding off of our sin and our sin nature. And from the details of credit contracts, cell phones, and internet communication, they know about our sin nature intimately. Congress, as our representative and a sinful practitioner, has circumvented the will of the people by forcing them to accept legal tender notes as if they were an equal dollar weight of gold or silver coin. Well, obviously, you can tell by today's values between gold, silver, and Fed notes that they aren't equal. But if you try to use gold or silver to pay a tax or to pay off a bank loan, they will take a $1 gold coin or a $20 gold coin as if it were a $1 or a $20 Federal Reserve note. A $20 gold coin would bring you well over 1300 bucks in this day and age. So you can see that there are skewed values. Those are the official values, and then there are those in the marketplace, which is not quite free, but a little freer than the legal tender market that's been created by banks and government. Now, this circumvention of the will of the people gave rise to an accusation that Congress had usurped a power not lawfully theirs during the legal tender debates a subject that was raised by Mr. Vieira on page 561 of Pieces of Eight, Volume One, in reference to John Locke and the Anglo-American tradition which defines usurpation as an exercise of power rightfully belonging to someone else. Tyranny, on the other hand, is the exercise of power that rightfully belongs to no one. That's a distinction worth remembering. Since we the people never delegated to Congress the power to coin paper, sorry, Bill, still, or to create money, sorry, populace, out of nothing, the legal tender debates did not beget usurpation, so much as they brought forth tyranny. And it was Thomas Jefferson who defined tyranny as a power exercised by government that cannot be exercised by the people. So it turns out that populace and fellow travelers, knowingly or unknowingly, Advocate tyranny, conceal beneath the banner of constitutional, interest-free, debt-free, honest money. When in fact, United States notes are not constitutional, are not interest-free, are not debt-free, nor are they honest money. In fact, the populist idea of a United States note is one that lacks a promise to pay anything to anyone. So their note is not even a note. Well, please forgive me for climbing onto the soapbox again when it was Mr. Vieira's turn to introduce the legal tender debates. In a nutshell, as he explains, Congress was reluctant to impose sufficient taxes to pay for the war up front. Taxes could be avoided, by the way, and more easily than the legal tender notes, which were a hidden tax. The reason for not raising taxes sufficiently was due to the war's lack of popularity. Does that sound familiar? This is revealed in another source from 1884 that I'll reference in a later broadcast. Congress was also slow and inept at selling bonds to raise money. These factors, coupled with a sense of impending doom, turned reasonable minds into cream of wheat. Here's our music. This is our next break. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and this is Dathom to the final segment of uh, this installment of Data mine, our message today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, number 14. And on the other side of the break, I had mentioned how Congress was slow in selling bonds to raise money and that the public was not really supportive of this war. And you can well understand why. Why would you want to fight your own countrymen? Okay. And uh, there was, a, uh, a, uh, I guess, another factor that we want to include in uh, Congressional reluctance. And that was the fear, the panic that was gripping Washington, excuse me, at the time. And uh, it was kind of like 9 11 when an irrational Congress, you know, responded to Chicken Little over there at the White House. And as a consequence, they passed the Patriot Act without even reading it. There's a common thread that runs through these and other major political events. And that common thread suggests that panic-stricken officials are very useful to create legislation favorable to special interests on Wall Street or elsewhere. Sowing fear and confusion among officials by way of media and lobbyists is useful to the hidden agenda. Well, we haven't been able to get into Mr. Vieira's treatment of this uh, legal tender debates, and we will get there. And uh, uh, But in the remaining few minutes, I guess we ought to mention what we'll talk about in the next broadcast, in that we'll be continuing with the legal tender debates of 1862 from a constitutional perspective, as shared with us by Edwin Vieira. But before doing so in the next broadcast, <clears throat> and because our retention of information is aided by occasional review, it's time probably long overdue that we recap the many economic myths or generally preconceived notions that are accepted in virtually all circles of economic reform. And why shouldn't they be? They're taught in colleges and universities. They're parroted by economists and journalists. They're as sacred as the Holocaust of Nazi Germany. Before going on the air today, I tallied up those myths or false economic assumptions that we've addressed, directly or indirectly, thus far in this series and in our two previous economic series not counting the eighteen erroneous assumptions presented in the truth and money book third edition nineteen eighty nine by Thorne and warner there are at least twenty of them that we've covered so far in this series we will be unraveling still more of these seemingly ancient and accepted mantras that tarnished the reputation of lawful money and justified the perpetuation of an unlawful credit system run by a den of thieves Nevertheless, it's the proclaimed enemies of bank-orchestrated oppression who parrot these myths, as if in so doing, they make themselves the friends of constitutional liberty and free enterprise. Some of these myths are dogmatically repeated, not only by those folks in the populist camp, but by advocates of hard money, the gold standard, and even by Bible-believing Christians. Since Lincoln Greenbacks received such rave reviews among the new generation of populists, we will cover those legal tender debates in some detail first from the perspective afforded by Mr. Vieira in 2002, Edwin Ed W. Kemmerer in 1935, followed by A. Barton Hepburn in his book, 1903, and lastly by James G. Blaine, who wrote a two-volume series called 20 Years of Congress, published in 1884. From these, we should be able to get a fair understanding that they knew they were violating the Constitution when they voted for legal tender. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. You have been listening to Data Line, and I hope this has been of interest to you and has aided your understanding. Thank you. And-
1: Will the end come on this Friday or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people. And the government is out to make you and I pay for it. Will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive the stock market tanks? Well, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge and are prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday.
3: Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. That's rbnhemppaste.com. so excited to have you as part of the wild pastures family and we look forward to bringing you the pasture-raised meats that you and your family will love now we started wild pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high quality pasture-raised meats and even when they did it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly now i'm not talking about the bottom of the barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free range or even cage-free terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you've definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at wild pastures and you will really love the delicious nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your delight.
1: visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the wild pastures banner ad
0: secure a shipment today beef poultry and pork raised the way nature
4: intended That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com.
2: My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's R E P U B10.
5: Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government,
1: Thank uh-huh. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off drop-and-lift?
5: What in the world is an Ease-Off drop-and-lift?
1: Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control.
5: That sounds great, but can I afford it?
1: Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits.
5: Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my
3: ease
1: off? Go to easeoff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F dot com. And hurry because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. easeoff.com. We make pigs fly.
2: Cows too.
5: Easeoff LLC 417-932-6419.
4: Life with hello, hello, hello from beautiful
5: Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung K, and I am currently the lead shilajee hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shilajee Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you, too, will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shilajit as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado.
1: You may already know Shilajit by other names.
5: Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, asphaltum, and others. Shioji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shioji has been used for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance.
1: Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N.
3: The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skin care products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit NaturalEarthMedicine.com. That's NaturalEarthMedicine.com.